Well, welcome again to Mill City. My name's JD. I'm one of the pastors here and the executive pastor, and it's my privilege every once in a while to be able to uh, preach as a part of my responsibility. And we get to continue today in our sermon series, What's So Great About Easter? This is a conversation uh, sort of designed to pose some questions uh, that our neighbors may be asking about Easter or about our faith in general. Before we get going with this, let's pause and pray and welcome uh, God into the next few moments we have together. Uh, ask for his presence and guidance. Would you join me in doing that? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the best thing about this morning is being in your presence. God, help us not to lose sight of that in the rest of the time that we have together. Uh, God, we need your leadership in our lives, and so we seek it this morning through your scripture, uh, through, through the things that you have to share with us this morning, through the text and the words that we sing and the words we say to one another. God, we pray for this school, uh, Lord, that they would have momentum going into this spring to, to uh, be present with the kids that they're teaching, and would you give peace to kids in this time when the weather starts to get warmer, and they start to get more and more antsy. God, would you give peace to this place, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, what's the first thing you do on a 70-degree day? What were some answers? I want to hear them. Bike, yes, that's a good answer. State park, nice, nice. Bird watching, birding, yeah, all right. Well, one of the first things uh, my wife, Christian Ann, and I do is pull out these chairs. So we're kind of known around the neighborhood as the chair people. Uh, we have these two chairs sitting out in front of our duplex that we live in. And uh, we learned this from, I think, Michael uh, did this first and preached a sermon on it, and we're like, hey, that's a great idea, a way to get, a, get to know our neighbors. So when we bought our house, we bought a set of these chairs and set them out, um, and we met so many people just by living life sort of outside and available, uh, and people stopped by, chatted, uh, stayed for dinner, um, and so we're really eager when it's, uh, the time is right uh, to set these out again, and it's amazing what you learn in springtime, right? It's like you haven't seen your neighbors for centuries, and they come out with like a beard and a few more children, and you're like, whoa, what, what's been going on in your life? Tell me more, you know? So this is a great way uh, that we've learned to connect with our neighborhood. And I brought these along today because I think it's, it's a great way to think about what we're really talking about uh, in this series called What's So... These go really far back. Try to stay in the front. In our series, What's So Great About Easter, we're really talking about conversations that you might have in this space, or spaces like it, where you interact with your neighbors. Maybe your neighbors are more at your workplace or the place you spend your time. And occasionally, there's conversations that come up, basically, that ask, what is the deal with Christianity? Or why are you a Christian? Or why is that important to you? And we figured, as we approach and anticipate Easter, we would kind of raise some of these questions and ask, what's so great about Easter? And Brian's got a list uh, here of the questions that we will ask, some of which we already talked about. And this morning, um, we're talking about the question that may come up, what do I need to be saved from? 
What do I need to be saved from? Our teaching team thinks this is a question that some people may be wondering, your neighbors. You may get into a point in conversations with them when Christianity or your faith comes up, and people just are wondering, what is it they need to be saved from? Different iterations of this question might be, why do I need your Jesus? Or what do you think the, the problem really is in my life that Jesus gives a solution to? It's a poignant question, isn't it? How would you respond to that question? If a neighbor was sitting here having a glass of iced tea or something with you on a warm 70-degree day and just all of a sudden out of the blue said, what, what do you think as a Christian I need to be saved from? How do you think you'd respond to that? So let me just leave that question, sit there in that conversation for a little bit. And the sermon series is about us doing some thinking, going to Scripture, sitting with these questions that our neighbors might ask us. So that's what we're going to do this morning with this question, what do I need to be saved from, and wonder together how we, 21st century Mill City Church, where our community is and our neighborhoods, how we'd respond to that question. So I have a scripture for us to look at this morning um, that might help us to answer how we may answer that question. But before we go to the scripture, let me just kind of name some ways that uh, maybe we've heard the church respond to that question or maybe how we've heard answers to that question before in our life. I think the elephant in the room when that question gets asked sometimes is hell, right? I think when our neighbors ask that question, they may be asking it with some trepidation because what they have in their mind is that the Christian message is that we're saved from hell. And I'm not here to say that's not wrong. I'm just saying, is that the only answer we have to the question, what are we saved from? I think uh, the way that Christians have talked about salvation has got us to a place where salvation is almost exclusively talked about in the afterlife. Salvation is something that we'll experience later. And thank goodness Jesus died on the cross to save us from our sins because then we'll go to heaven instead of hell. That's been the predominant narrative. But the question I pose in terms of the question of this conversation with your neighbor, is that the only thing that Jesus saving us does? So this scripture I want to share this morning, I think, gets at this question really well. And it's from Titus 3, uh, 3 through 8. So you can turn in your Bible there if you want. It'll be up on the screen as well. Before we read the passage, let me give you just a little context of what's going on here in Titus. Titus is a small book that comes towards the end of the New Testament. It's a letter from the Apostle Paul to one of his pupils, or one of the people who kind of job-shadowed him, that he left at a church that he started Um, And so he's writing his pupil, Titus, to give him some instructions on how to lead the church and how the church should sort of operate together. In this particular part of Titus, uh, Paul is addressing, in one sense, he comes to a place in the book where he says, this is what matters most, but he does so by way of kind of challenging both Titus and the church that he's leading on being a little judgy a little uh, uh, proud. So the, the immediate issue in this text is that Paul is confronting the Christians there on uh, feeling like they're in a position of power because they've received salvation from Jesus. 
and therefore their attitude towards their neighbors is a little judgy. Does that sound familiar to, to uh, some of the perceptions that maybe our neighbors would have of Christians and of us? It sounds similar. So the, right before, the verse before we're going to read, let me just read that and then flow into the scripture we're going to read together. Back in verse, the second half of verse 1, he says, Be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always be gentle to everyone. So he's speaking into this problem of being judgy and arrogant. And then he says this, At one time, we too were foolish and disobedient and deceived and enslaved, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of our own righteousness, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might be heirs, uh, we might become heirs having hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things. So that, so that those who have trusted in God may be careful or may be carefully de- may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. This, these things are excellent and profitable for everyone. So how is this scripture speaking into our question, what, have, or what do I need to be saved from? First of all, I want you to notice that the prominent thing is not the afterlife. The prominent thing that Paul is speaking into is a salvation that matters now. A salvation that matters in everyday life. And I think the previous in, in church history, our fixation on the afterlife would be a little confusing for the original writers of the New Testament. It would be a kind of a great adventure of possibly missing the whole point of salvation. And that if we fixate too much on what's going to happen after we die, we, we, we're running the risk of not experiencing the joy of salvation that we can experience today in Jesus. And this, uh, this passage really focuses on what we can experience now. And notice what this passage says about our question, what are we being saved from? Particularly verse 3 there. Let me just read it again. We too were foolish, disobedient, uh, we were deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice, envy, hatred, and we hated one another. Let me break that down just a little bit more because the language there um, is, is a little more broad than how it comes across at first. This idea of being foolish, I think, is closer to being confused or unaware And I think what Paul is hoping to do is to stir empathy in his audience to say, you are not in a position of power to say, let me tell you how it is. You have to be one who has joy in the treasure they've found, but not privilege over someone to speak down to them. One professor in seminary put it this way, when we talk to others about the joy of Jesus, it's like one beggar telling another beggar where to find food. That's the posture we need to have. 
This idea of a disobedience is more of an idea of distrust, distrust in the true leader of our lives. And what I really want to focus in on, because I think this gets kind of pushed to the wayside a little bit when the church has talked about sin, the problem of evil, there's this idea of deception. Other translations say misled. I think that's a great term, misled. The problem of sin that oppresses our lives has to, or it starts with us being misled and deceived. And the outcome of that in our lives is this enslaved reality, this captivity, as, as Paul describes. And what happens in this captivity is anger and malice towards ourselves and towards each other. I mean, when I look uh, at, the, at the tension that exists in the world right now, it can be kind of tied to that reality, this malice that we have towards ourselves, destruction of ourselves and towards others. How I would encapsulate this kind of image of what maybe is the definition of sin is this idea that I want to call a cycle of captivity. Sin is a cycle of captivity. And what this does is harkens back, I think, uh, to the garden, where at at the beginning, there were two humans who were created in God's image in the garden in perfect unity with God. And part of their vocation, it says they were made in the image of God, and that's a vocational statement. That's a calling statement. That means they were meant to reflect God's character to the world. One writer, uh, N.T. Wright, puts it this way. He kind of talks about the image of God being a mirror, that human beings were decide, uh, uh, designed to worship God, to look up to God and take his character, his goodness, his love, his peace, and then turn the mirror down and reflect it to the world. That's where in Genesis it talks about us having dominion over the world, having leadership over the world. That's what that leadership is supposed to be like, where we look to God for leadership and his character and then reflect that in our relationships with the earth, with each other, and ourselves. And what happened in the, in the original story in Genesis, first of all, was deceit. First of all, they were led astray by the serpent when he said, did God really say? They were invited to distrust God's leadership. They were invited to flip the mirror, if you will. They were invited to look at created things and seek created things for worth and value instead of look to God. And that's really where we get it all jumbled up. When we worship things that were created instead of the things that, uh, instead of God who created all things, that's where this all goes sideways. When we're misled, then we distrust the people around us. Then when we give ourselves to the things that, uh, that are created, we are ultimately enslaved by those things. And it produces malice in our lives. Let me just share an example. So uh, this election season, last November, I, I got so enthralled in the news that I woke up every day and looked at it. And after the outcome of the election, I was so mad. And I was so, like, I, I was so taken off guard of how much the outcome of that had control over my life. And I realized that I had invested so much of myself in that process that towards the end of it, it had a control over me. 
Let me give you another example of how this cycle of captivity plays out in my own life or has played out. When I was young, I struggled uh, with lust and sexual uh, uh, temptation and pornography in particular. And there is a clear example in that in my own life where I gave myself to that thing hoping to get something from that experience. And I got something maybe initially, but over time, I was so captive to that and so alone and had no one to talk to about it because I felt like God was so ashamed of me, had so much judgment for me, and I was stuck in this cycle of captivity. Let me give you a more recent example. My wife and I have been doing a lot of waiting these days. A lot of waiting around. We are uh, hoping to build a, a new home, which is just a, a gift to us in, in northeast, like four blocks from our house. And we've been five, going on six months in the permitting process for that house. So we're just waiting and waiting and waiting for something we feel like uh, God has called us to. And in that waiting, I've noticed I've gotten so attached to the idea of this home being built that I get possessive and defensive about it. So last week, my uh, project man manager sent me some text that he had a conflict with the city, and it looked like from the text, he's not a great written communication communicator, so uh, it looked like from the text that he had a mistake. And I was livid. I was so mad. I wrote out this email and, you know, hovering over the send button, and it had, you know, some choice words in it, and I was so mad. And I, I dialed up his number, decided not to send the email, decided just to call him instead. I dialed up his number, and right before I pressed dial, I was like, I should pray. Because that's what you do, I guess. Uh, and I was mad. I was like, Jesus, I'm going to rip this guy's head off. And I'm sure Jesus didn't appreciate that language, but he was gracious with me. And then this thought came to mind like, uh, that's been there from the beginning of this journey. This land is not your own. And it just put a peace over me. And I called him, and I was still a little anxious and angry. Uh, but he called, and he was like all cheery. I'm like, oh, sure, you're cheery. I'm not cheery. Uh, and then he started to explain. And I'm like, what's the deal with that text? And he's like, oh, yeah, sorry, that was supposed to go to someone else. I'm like, oh, <laughs> great. Perfect. But what I learned from that is that by getting so attached to this house, this idea of this, it had possessed me. I was in this cycle of captivity to the idea of this thing coming true. And I no longer was able to maintain this objective sort of uh, what I was originally called to be, an image, a bearer of the image of God with peace and kindness and trust in God, not some land or new building that's being built. Do you see how that happens in your own life? where you give yourself to something and then you become captive to the very thing you've given yourself to. That's because we are not designed to give ourselves away to the things that were created. We are designed to give our, uh, our attention and give leadership to God so that he can lead our lives and lead us into peace and kindness and ultimately salvation. See, the problem is that we've given ourselves away, that we get caught in this cycle of captivity. So what does Jesus save us from? 
It's just that. It's that cycle that we've gotten ourselves into. So what what does God do about it? If we continue in these verses, it says, but his kindness and his love, not judgment, not scorn, not anger, but his kindness and love, the kindness and love of God our Savior, he appeared, it says. He appeared. He showed up in the midst of our captivity. He showed up in the midst of our context, in the midst of our anger towards one another and self. He appeared. He thought it would be fit to arrive himself, not stay at a distance. And he saved us, not because of our righteous acts, not because of the righteous things we've done, but because of his mercy for us. Jesus doesn't desire for us to earn mercy. He wants to just give it to us. His plan for breaking the cycle of captivity is to give us mercy and forgiveness. It says he saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Many of the scholars who look at this text think this was an originally a baptism hymn or phrase that was said at baptism because baptism represents this public identification of the with the saving work of Jesus by identifying with his resurrection in which he overcame the power of that captivity, the power of sin over our lives. And the Holy Spirit who's poured out to us generously. And here's what's great about this text. It's, it's Trinitarian in the sense that it covers all three persons of, of the Godhead. And it involves the Holy Spirit in salvation. And this is what I mean by salvation being now. When we Uh, come into relationship with Jesus, he gives us the Holy Spirit to be a guide unto salvation. That means that salvation, salvation from this captivity can be experienced now through the daily leadership of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So when we're having this conversation with our neighbors, it's not just about the future. It's about everyday life that can be lived in relationship with the eternal God through the Holy Spirit in our lives that brings us out of captivity into freedom every single day. It says, having been justified, that word means being set right by his grace. We might become heirs, having hope of eternal life. This idea of an heir is the idea of adoption, which is just a little too real for me right now to go into. But um, my wife and I are in the midst of an adoption process. More on that later in life. But um, the richness of this idea of adoption is this, this idea of being some, experiencing some trauma, some spiritual trauma and spiritual homelessness in which God sees it fit to create a home for us, to take on his identity, to be a part of his home into eternal life. And that that idea of eternal life is not just for the future, it's for the now. Maybe a way to understand it is life at its fullest, at its most true. That's what Jesus offers to us, and that's how Jesus saves us. So what does this mean for this conversation over here? I think the question, what are we saved from, can be responded to with maybe some more questions, right? To be a good listener, it's always good to respond to questions with some more clarifying questions. If Jesus gives us freedom, maybe we can ask our neighbor what they feel captive to, and maybe even share a story about that. 
if Jesus, as the scripture says, in the, through the Holy Spirit, gives us renewal in our lives, maybe we need to be asking our neighbors, what needs to be made new in your life? And share stories about how Jesus has made our life new. If, if Jesus gives us eternal life, true and lasting life, uh, maybe we ought to be asking, how are you being prohibited from experiencing true and full life? Can I tell you about this crazy story that happened to me yesterday? So uh, I've had a very full week. Um, and that means that I hadn't given as much time as I wanted to to the sermon. So I carved out time specifically Saturday to work on that. And I went to my favorite coffee shop, Mojo Coffee, over here. Um, and I walk in the door, and immediately I see Joey, my friend uh, and neighbor, if you will, because we all hang out at the, uh, we hang out the, he's a regular at this coffee shop like I am. And immediately I'm like, oh no, I'm not going to get any work done. And so I kind of like kindly, you know, went to the opposite corner. And I love Joey. I just had a lot to do. Uh, I went to the other side of the coffee shop and I ordered uh, Americano. That's my thing. And uh, when the drink was up, I had to walk by Joey's table and he like intercepted me. He's like, JD, how's it going? I'm like, great, here we go for the next hour, which was awesome. Let me tell you, I was sitting there preparing a sermon about how to talk to your neighbor if they were to ask you, what is it like to be a Christian? And the next hour, that's exactly what we talked about. Jesus does this all the time. He's like, you can prepare all you want for sermons, but I'm going to just have you do the thing you're talking about. And so at one point in the conversation, he seriously said to me, how did you come to be a Christian? And I'm sitting there going like, what in the world is happening right now? And so um, I was able to tell him, I'm like, well, really, I was a Christian from birth, but I, there were seasons of my life where I just went through rejection of that. He's like, why did you reject it? He's like, did you become Buddhist or something? Or what did you do? I'm like, no, not that extreme. But there was just seasons of my life where I had this, had to, had to reject some of the things in which I was grown up with. And he's like, what did you have to reject? And I said, the thing for me was that I was so obsessed with pleasing people and thinking that my actions uh, piled up to pleasing God. I was under this tyranny of having to please God with my behaviors, and I, I, I got crushed under the weight of that way of understanding God. And he said, I said it came, came to a head when I had a bad breakup in college, but that was really the thing that uh, made a turn for me. And, and what I realized, Joey, in that moment was that the whole basis of Christianity is not based on that lie that I was believing. It's based on that Jesus only has grace for us, that there's nothing we can do to earn his love. And I was like, okay, here's the moment. I just said it. What's going to happen? He's like, that's cool. Can I tell you about my leg that I just broke? <laughs> She's like, awesome. So this, this is what happens sometimes when we're in conversations with, with neighbors. I, I had the, all these expectations that I would be giving like this prayer for him and he would come to faith in Jesus, but he was ready to move on to the next thing. And I have no idea what those moments of sharing Christianity with him will come to. But in that moment, by God's grace, I was willing and able to share the hope that I had. And when it comes to these conversations, when it comes to questions like, what am I saved from? 
I think that's all that Jesus is asking from you, to be open and available to share the hope that you've found in him. Today, uh, we get to celebrate communion, so if the band wants to come up. I love communion, not just because we get pizza afterwards, but because it's a tangible thing that Jesus gave us to experience and receive his grace together. It was, it was almost like Jesus is saying, if you're left to your own devices, you're going to get way too conceptual. You're going to get way too up here. You have to actually experience through some sort of practice a receiving of my grace. So what we do in communion, we have bread and juice, which represents the bread that uh, Jesus broke at the Last Supper and the wine that he poured out and gave to his friends there at the table. And it's gluten-free bread. And what we do is grab it and dip it in the cup. But that night uh, when he did that for his friends and for his disciples around was Passover night. It was this night where Jewish folks celebrated the Passover, this experience that set off the story of God saving them from captivity, very literal captivity. And Jesus, when he said, this is my body broken for you, and he broke the bread, it was some way a reminder of the manna that they received in the desert when they didn't have anything. They felt like they were all alone, and God provided for them in the, des- in the desert. When we experience this cycle of captivity, sometimes it feels like we're in a desert, doesn't it? And we need to rely on what God can give us. And when he took the cup and he poured it out and he gave it to his friends, he said, this is my blood uh, poured out for you. It was a reminder of how the Israelites marked the top of their doors with blood and the Spirit of God passed over and saved them. It was a way for Jesus to say, I'm giving everything for you. And you don't have to earn anything in return. So this morning, if Jesus is your leader and your savior, if you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you to come and participate in this practice where we remember Jesus, where we remember that our salvation is not earned. It's not just for later, it's for now. And we can be saved from the things that hold us captive in our life. Let's pray and we'll move into communion. Jesus, we love you. God, we celebrate your sacrifice here and now. We ask for you to be present with us and show us what this means for us in our lives and the lives of our neighbors. In Jesus' name, amen.